Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Join Mason and Jake each week as they try new wines and discover how much government is in your drink. Welcome to another episode of Tasting Anarchy. I'm your host, Jacob Lindsay. Oh, and I'm by... (laughs) I screwed that up, and as always, I'm joined by Mason Joseph. I didn't. You didn't screw anything up until you said you screwed something up. Yeah, <laughs> so funny. I, I lost. I like. I lost my train of thought for a second. I took a sip of what I'm drinking, which is actually not our grape. I, I actually finished that bottle Friday and was like, "Oh crap!" Mm. I was supposed to save some of that, and then I took a sip <laughs> of this other one, mm-hmm. uh, which which we've had before as well, which is that uh, Cabernet Sauvignon from uh, Donati Vineyards, mm-hmm. and I was like. I don't know if it's what I've been eating, but this sort of tastes a little bit like grapefruit. Like oh. It's got like that that kind of bitterness in it. And uh, I had uh, hamburger flavor sunflower seeds, <laughs> and um, <laughs> which is you know I I I I ordered uh, on Amazon. I figured out that if you order twelve bags, it's like sixty cents less per bag mm-hmm. than at the gas stations. I ordered a bunch. So and I I love these hamburger flavor sunflower seeds. So you're basically then, out of and then flower seeds already. No, no, I've, I've, I just they just came on Friday, so I've got uh, eleven bags left. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> but like I was eating those, and um, I did have a uh, not a fresca, but uh, mm, fresca. Yeah, they're not making them right now. But uh, as actually we discussed, I think two episodes ago or three, yes. maybe three episodes ago. Uh, but. Uh, What's that? What's that thing that everybody always makes fun of? It's like sparkling water, but it has like a tiny f- flavor of other things. It's um, the the one the uh, the car mixes. Cast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I want to I want to say Franzia, but I know that's not right. Um, Lacroix, Lacroix, yeah, Lacroix, yeah. So <laughs> I had I, there was uh, <laughs> from Ron Paul Day. Mm-hmm. We uh, somebody brought a whole bunch of Franzia and Lacroix. Mm-hmm. And um, Theodore brought it as kind of a joke, and Carr didn't come, so I'm calling him out on this episode. Yeah. He was he, he he said like he was like, oh, I'm too busy winning at volleyball. So, uh, so apparently he was very successful. So congratulations on that. But I, yeah, I still exactly. wish he had come. Yeah, uh, both but, ways. But anyways, uh, Theodore uh, crowdfunded government. He brought Franzia and Lacroix, and I didn't drink any of the Franzia. I actually only had one beer the entire time, oh, and nice. and then mostly water because it was really hot, and I. And I had, ha- and like I said, I had a whole bottle of Pinot Noir the night before, and didn't want to, uh, didn't want your kidneys didn't want to, to shut down and die in a park in Texas. Yeah, yeah, I, did, I just didn't want to keep. I just didn't want to drink a huge amount the next day, and um, mm-hmm. so I was eating, I was drinking those Lacroix, and he left a couple here, so I've been drinking those all day because they're they're pretty good, and uh, so I was thinking maybe it's maybe it's like an aftertaste of that, but it's it was really just kind of a it sort of caught me off guard because it had it has it's it's not exactly like grapefruit but it's that sort of sweet bitterness that grapefruit has that's like in mm-hmm. it so yeah but i mean that, that that you know the the fresca analogy makes so much sense to that mm-hmm. like because that's just like you said it's like that is a very fresca-esque like description of flavor yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's good. I'm not going to review that one today. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell everybody what I was sipping on and drank an entire bottle of on Friday because that is also our grape of the week, mm-hmm. which is Pinot Noir. Uh, this was my last bottle of Ludum uh, Pinot Noir from uh, Sanford and Benedict Vineyard in Santa Rita Hills. 
I, I like Santa Rita Hills Pinot Noir a lot. This is not my favorite one. They also have, uh, I think it's great. I want to say Gap's Crown Vineyard, uh, mm-hmm. but they had two. And the other one I think is better. This one's also very good. Uh, but this is a defunct brand. They don't. This brand doesn't exist anymore. The two winemakers is a collaboration between the two, and uh, they have gone their separate ways. They're doing their own projects now, which uh, I have to look up their names. I can't remember who they are, but I think that that Ludum imprint that they had was a really, just really high class Pinot Noir, and I think all of it was from either it, some of it might have been from Sonoma, but I think most of it was Santa Rita Hills, mm-hmm. and. Santa Rita Hills is this very small region in California that just makes exceptional Pinot Noir. It's a, it's a really unusual microclimate. It's cooler than uh, – it's it's further south, I think, than Napa and Sonoma. It's on mm-hmm. the other side of San Francisco, if, if I'm correct. I, I could be mistaken. But um, it has – it's like a two-by-one-mile area. It's, it's very small. And – there's a couple of vineyards there. They they specialize in Pinot Noir. I, I might be totally understating how big it is, but it's it's a very small region, and they make just really good Pinot Noir. They have a very unusual terroir and this very strange kind of cooler microclimate, even though they're further south. So they get a lot of sun, and but it's also cool enough for Pinot Noir to ripen slowly, which is kind mm-hmm. of what you need. So uh, this is still available. The the Ludum stuff they they. You can find it, I think 20, this one was a 2014. I think 2016 was their last vintage. I could be wrong. It might be 2017. And you can still get it. It's it's occasionally shows up on last bottle wines, uh, which is where I got this from, which uh, if you want to save $10, you can go over to tastinganarchy.com and sign up using our link and you'll save $10 on your first purchase. Uh and also, we'll get a kickback, which is nice. Mm-hmm. If if it ever shows up there, you'll be able to get it. And you should reach out uh, to. Them I, hi- I highly recommend it. <laughs> What's that? I said, like, I think we've re- recommended this in the past. Like, you reaching out about certain things that they have, um, just to see if like they still yeah. have it. Um, so I should. If, I, I have a I have a contact there that was pretty helpful before. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, I use Brave, and uh, they I googled Santa Rita. And so DuckDuckGo, DuckDuckGo has Bing maps up, but the map imprint has the Apple map symbol. So, cause I was trying to figure out where Santa Rita was and what they're showing. And I'm not saying it's right. Um, so do you know Hayward or like Pleasanton or Vermont? Yeah. It's like North of Pleasanton. It's like in between like, so like, if you're like, it's in oh, line. It, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at it yeah. now. It looks like it's just, it's just a little bit North of Santa Barbara. Well, so like the one that it's showing me is like coming up with Dublin, California, but saying Santa Rita, I have no idea why. <laughs> so oh, weird. Like, I'm trying to figure this out. I'm like, what the yeah, hell? It's actually, it's way further South than I thought according to this map. But, uh, I know I, I was pretty sure it was further South mm-hmm. than, than uh napa and sonoma which are north of san francisco but i thought this was like near monterey which is not that much further south uh than san francisco Mm -hmm. but according to this map it's like way further south it's like halfway to la Hmm. so that might be correct and i'll take uh yeah no that's exactly it's in santa it's in santa barbara county so uh, yeah it's way way further south than i thought 
apparently like either I'm not spelling Santa Rita correctly. Um, cause it's like now it's showing me Salinas. It's like, huh? What is this? Do, do STA dot Rita Hills. Okay. STA Rita Hills. Taste of Santa yeah, Rita. Yeah, definitely. Wiki, Wiki says Santa Barbara County, so it's way south. Yeah. Yeah, that is pretty pretty south. Yeah, that's interesting because that's not like what I picture in my head where it is. I picture like near Monterey. I would not imagine like they're growing wine down there. That's really Well, there is – there's actually a lot of – a large portion of LA, well, it's not, it's, I think it's LA County, but mm-hmm. that used to be vineyards, a, a huge portion of that. Huh. Uh, and, but it was usually not super high quality wines, but, uh, and, and they didn't really produce high quality wines down there for a while, but there's actually, I think, uh, I think I'm almost sure Paso Robles is down there. Hmm. Robles. Or Peso Robles? P-A-S-O? Is that Peso or Paso? Well, it depends on if we're peso is with an e, pay oh. like a pe. I think it's so. paso. Yeah, because I think that's down there, and they they produce world class wines. And uh, let's see, where is that on the maps? So Paso Robles. Uh, that's a couple hours north of yeah, uh, okay. Santa Maria or Maria. Okay, so like yeah. Santa Barbara, um, and it's inland. Too. Yeah, that that is a lot further inland too. Yeah, I was expecting coastal as well. All right, my my headphones are running out of batteries. I'm going to plug in sure. the uh, other thing and switch over. So give me yeah. just a second. We may lose the we may lose the feed. I forgot to plug my headphones in. That's okay. Jacob and his advanced technology headphones. I'm using the Apple phones that ha- come with the 3.5 millimeter jack Apple uh, products, um, mainly because my desktop doesn't have bluetooth so i can't use my airpods but when i eventually buy a new mac i won't have there we go anymore (laughs) switch it's switched over and i can hear you fine i was uh yeah i can hear you fine okay i didn't lose you at all but i I was just making some goofy comments (laughs) oh okay well there we go we filled we filled the dead air so now we've we've rambled uh, quite a bit of time about where things are in California. Wine, in, in California our, wine regions. One of and, our favorite uh, states to hate on, but also that's true, to love. But also to love. Yeah, it's a yes. very, very uh, love-hate relationship. Yeah. But um, what are you sipping on? Because I saw that you t- you texted me a, a picture of something. I don't think I've had it. And uh, uh, I was yeah. like, oh, I wonder what that's like. So this was Estantican, S-T-A-N-C-I-A, Vineyards. Um, so I got it cause it was from Monterey and that was the only thing is that it was Monterey County and you know how much I enjoy weird parts of California that yeah, Monterey's great. Yeah. yeah. Monterey's beautiful. Um, so I was like, okay, it's from Monterey, like Pinot Noir from Monterey is a little different. So let me get this. It was also like wine continues to be on sale at Kroger. So, um, if you're in the Hampton Roads area and you like wine, Kroger has wine on sale. So this was like 15 bucks. So, um, it wasn't that great. <laughs> like, really? Okay. You know, it was one of those things where, like, I know with Pinot Noir, a lot of the times I'm just not getting it. 
something about it I'm not getting. But like, you know, the, they describe aroma, appealing floral notes of violet and lavender intertwined with fruit aromas of cherry and plum. I got medicinal and red fruit hmm. on the smell. Um, Interesting. They described the color as ruby red. It was much darker than that, in my opinion. Um, it was also a lot sharper and just kind of subtly off-putting on the first couple of sips when I opened it yesterday. Okay. Um, so I was having another glass today to take some notes and things like that. And, you know, it's one of those things, like, I don't feel that I didn't get my $15 worth. It's definitely not a badly produced bottle of wine whether I got a good bottle or not, you know, like I could see if somebody like from the vinery, like tried it and was like, yeah, that this bottle's bad. Like something went okay. wrong with this bottle. I could get that. Um, but it's not like you take a sip of it and you're like, Oh, it's like rotted dog poop or something like that. Like, you know, <laughs> right. you, you know, like when something's really wrong with a bottle of wine, you can kind of tell like this is skunked. Like, so, um, you know, it's 13.5% alcohol by volume. It was, uh, um, 2016 is the vintage. So I was, I couldn't remember if there was many fires in Monterey in 2016, 2017, you know, kind of that, right. that range. So I wasn't really sure there. So I didn't know if there was some sort of not smoke taint, but like just kind of something off on the production year or something like that. Yeah. But like most of the time with Pinot Noir, like there's stuff going on that I'm not getting, they described the uh, flavor as concentrated flavors of black cherry, brown sugar, plum, and leathery notes with a silky palate, a mid palate, and a rustic, toasty finish. Um, the toasty finish, I get that. Like it definitely, like the first sip was like very drying in the mouth, um, but not like not super acidic and not super tannic. Like it was just kind of dry. And then, okay. like the second or third sip is when it kind of got like more of a, a back throat burn. Um, flavors to me were just kind of really red fruit, but again, something else was in there. It was just a little weird. Um, when I, you know, kind of read like concentrated flavors, it's kind of mm -hmm. like, did you let some of this evaporate <laughs> and put it in there? Like it just, something was a little off on it. Um, you know, it's like if you like Pinot Noir and you haven't had something from Monterey, like give it a shot. Um, if you do, and then you kind of think the same thing as I do is like, something's different about this. Let me know. Um, you know, reach out to us, take tasting energy, uh, gmail.com or send us a tweet or something like that. You know, just it, something was different about it. I don't know what it was. Um, wasn't disappointed, but also wasn't thrilled. So, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So hmm. I, I don't think I've, I don't think I've had anything from Monterey, not at least that I can recall. Mm -hmm. And, and the price point of the two things you and I are drinking, I don't think I mentioned it before. I actually, I don't think I gave the details on mine at all. No, um, we, we talked about it and then we started talking about, uh, yeah, their Chardonnay, their, um, Cavasab. Yeah. Well, let me, let me go ahead and give a, uh, a quick, a quick, um, sort of rundown of, of mine. So mine, mine retails for about $50 a bottle. Mm -hmm. So it's a different price point. Um, and, uh, I would, I would expect generally that when we're talking about under a hundred dollars, the prices do kind of matter for what it is, especially if, if it's from the United States. Sometimes when you get outside of the United States, it's a little more, uh, wishy-washy. Like sometimes you can get excellent $15 bottles from like Chile mm -hmm. and then like really shitty ones that are like, $40. So, 
it, it's one of those kind of weird things that in America though it's it, it's kind of established like the price points and what to expect based off of uh, the quality. And so, so mine is a little bit of a higher price point. Now, obviously, I don't pay that because I got it from last bottle, and usually that's uh, that's going to be you know anywhere between twenty and forty percent, sometimes fifty percent off the retail price. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just they they have connections with it. It's usually it's surplus stuff that they're that they're able to uh, oh, get rid of. Yeah, exactly. So uh, with this one, it, it, it's thirteen point eight eight percent ABV. And uh, which I would say is probably a little bit on the low side. It did have a little bit more of an alcoholic flavor. But uh, one of the things that I do like about the, the Ludum Pinot Noir is uh, Pinot Noir is often described as kind of a ghost. So it's a little bit difficult to identify what it is, but it does go really well with food. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had this on Friday with some salami and uh Cajun turkey because the Cajun turkey meat was on sale and I really like that Cajun turkey at meat. Kroger again. Yeah, at Kroger also. This is the Kroger podcast now. <laughs> yeah, well, I think because we both shop there. And, and they do have good deals and, mm-hmm. and, a, and a lot of their stuff is good. So yeah. this was the the Boris Head Cajun turkey. <clears throat> and actually, I brought it up at Ron Paul Day, the Ron Paul Day celebration yesterday. Mm-hmm. And um, a bunch of people were like, oh, yeah, the Cajun turkey from Boris Head. Yeah, I get that all the time. And I, I, I don't know if they're the only ones who make the Cajun turkey, but it's very good. So I had that with this. And uh, I think probably one of the reasons I like this Pinot Noir a lot is because it is clear what it tastes like. It's a little bit easier to identify than, you know, some some of the stuff from Oregon is a little bit more complicated. Burgundy is especially more complicated for me, at least. And, and it may be an inexperienced palate as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there in this there's it's clear strawberry clear raspberry clear maybe um cranberry or uh uh what are those uh those red fruits that are large that have all the tiny berries inside of them uh that's also tart like cranberry pomegranate yeah pomegranate so like that kind of like tartness is in Mm -hmm. there as well but there's also just like that very clear strawberry flavor and then there's a little bit of the oak notes as well a uh, little bit of spice and a little bit of like vanilla, but that's not overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So that's why, like, I think this is a very good one because it is easy, kind of. It's kind of easy to understand, but it's also very good and well and well balanced. Yeah, it does sound very like more upfront than I'm used to, like a Pinot Noir being. Yeah, yeah, because they can they can be very like complicated is not the right word, but they can be difficult sometimes. So they they do go really well with food, I think. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of times, like when Victoria and I go out and I order a glass of wine, which I don't usually because by the glass, it's usually pretty expensive. But once in a while, if we're at a, like a nicer place, I'll order a glass of wine because it does make the food experience better, especially since I took those uh, certification courses. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate the food pairing a lot more than I used to. Yeah. And, uh, so a lot of times, so I'll, I'll order a Pinot Noir. It goes, it goes great with, uh, like, you know, like a steak or, uh, it goes well with a lot of stuff actually, I think. Yeah. So the ones from California are more bold, so they do go really well with red meat and that's what I usually eat, Mm -hmm. but it, but you can, but it, because, and we'll get into this when we get into the grape, but it, it varies so much where it's from that, uh, you can get a lot of stuff. So it goes, it goes really well with poultry. If it's from one of the places where it has a lighter, more delicate flavor, it goes great with beef. It goes great with like, uh, like veal, um, or like, like, uh, like kind of like the, the more meaty stews and that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. Pinot Noir 
one like this goes really well with those. But then like a lighter one, you know, poultry or fish would be fine. Uh, now, granted, a lot of people will with fish will plant will, will do more one of the either one of the mutations of Pinot Noir, which we'll also get into, uh, like a Pinot Gris um, or uh, Pinot Blanc. Or, you know, uh, some of the other white wines, the ones that you enjoy a little bit more, those do, those do tear, tend to pair better with the lighter meats and, the, yeah. and fish and things like that. So it's just, it's just an, it's an interesting wine. It is very diverse and, uh, but it goes with a lot of stuff and it, and it really is dependent on the one you're getting, what it goes with. Yes. And that's, that's really interesting about it. So mm-hmm. do you want to get into my facts that I pulled for Pinot Noir? Yeah. Okay, so uh, I decided to do this a little bit differently. So this is, I think, the fifth most popular grape. If I have that correctly, I think we did uh, Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon. This would be the fourth, Merlot, and then Pinot Noir. So, Mm -hmm. uh, And then we did Zinfandel out of order. So Zinfandel, I think, was like seven. Yeah. So so we're on grape number four of the most popular grapes series. So this is one of our most popular grape series episodes. And we're talking about Pinot Noir. And Pinot Noir is a super fascinating grape. It's got a really interesting history. But we did cover some of the history in a previous episode. I didn't actually pull the number. But uh, if you go back through our backlogs, I think it might be titled something about Pinot Noir. So um, Mm -hmm. you can go back and look at that. So I'm going to give a little bit of a different thing about this. This is I'm going to focus a little bit more on the mutations and then regional characteristics of Pinot Noir so that people can, if, if you're looking to pair it with food or if you're looking for different things, because it is a very diverse grape, you can kind of get a better idea of what region to look for when you're trying to get a Pinot Noir. And uh, so I'll go ahead and go through just like the basic facts of it and we'll get into some of the uh, mutations and stuff, which are, are pretty interesting too. So uh, Pinot Noir roughly translates from French to uh, black pine. And that's because it is a tightly clustered grape and they're roughly in the shape of a pine cone and it resembles a black pine cone. So that's how it got its name, which I think is kind of interesting. That is really interesting. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, a very, very ancient grape, uh, likely only one or two generations removed from wild. Uh, so in certain places, they call it Vitus Silvestris. But it is a wild version of Vita vernifera, which is what almost all of the domesticated grapes are, with the exception of the American uh, grapes, which are less popular. People don't per, uh, plant those as as much, and they are used for different things usually. But um, the the ones that we know, the European grapes, are are from Vita vernifera. But the wild version of that is Vitis silvestris. Which, when I googled Vitis Silvestris, I got two results. One is actually a current wild grape variety that grows in China. And the other is the European wild grape variety, which barely exists anymore because of Fluoroxera. So, uh, that's I thought was kind of an interesting. I just kind of wanted to put it in there. So, this is actually like very close to a wild grape. It's it's It was domesticated, but it's only a couple of uh, generations removed. So there are similar grapes uh, written about from Burgundy, which is where people kind of identify Pinot Noir with, is is the Burgundy region of France. Uh, And there's things written about it that describe it from the first century, but they didn't call it Pinot Noir at the time. And so there is a little bit of a debate going on about uh, what people were writing about. And 
some people think that they're just describing the wild grape variety. And some people think they're describing specifically Pinot Noir. But there is evidence that this has been cultivated for you know, roughly 2,000 years, possibly longer. Uh, and I'll get into this a little bit uh, later. There is another type of grape that is actually a genetic uh, genetic identical to uh, Pinot Noir. So it is, it is a Pinot Noir grape that's from England that lore has it that the Romans left it there. So some people think that maybe Pinot Noir goes even back to the Romans. Wow. So and that they brought it from France. But there is a lot of strong evidence that that the Burgundy region of France and possibly maybe across the border in Germany, that's where it comes from. And uh, so that uh, so kind of getting into some of the mutations. So Pinot Gris, which is, uh, or Pinot Grigio, as the Italians call it, is a mutation of Pinot Noir that is uh, a white grape. Uh, or it's a, it's actually, it's, it's a spotted grape, they call it. So it's actually a kind of a pinky color and it's white and red speckled. Mm-hmm. And then, and that makes a white wine that actually you and I both enjoy. I very much uh, enjoy. Yep. And, um, and very popular too. And then there's also Pinot Blanc, which is a white mutation of Pinot, uh, Pinot Noir. So there's two, those two mutations are all, are, are pretty popular. I, I don't think we drink, drink as much Pinot Blanc here in the, in the United States, but it is pretty popular in Europe. And, uh, they're both, uh, mutations of Pinot Noir. Yeah, then there's I another mutation. Think, I don't think What's I've that? seen Pinot Blanc like as an available item. Um, I think, I, I think I've actually had a Pinot Blanc and it was just a white wine. And I, and actually I thought it was sort of like how champagne includes Pinot Noir and it's just not uh, left on the skins. And since the juice is clear, you it produces a clear wine. Um, I thought Pinot Blanc just meant that it was pressed and pulled off and then turned into white wine. Hmm. But apparently it's a mutation that makes a white grape. And I, I thought that was interesting. So there's there's another one called Gamay Beaujolais that is uh, – was it's a mutation that was cultivated for – Actually, apparently, it's it's that this this one actually might be one that we get into later when we talk about more obscure grapes. Although it is widely planted in California, this is a genetic mutation of Pinot Noir that comes from France, but was uh, brought over and perfected in California specifically to grow in California. It's it's because it has earlier ripening. That's why they. Uh, cultivated it so they would get uh, different yields at different times. And it is widely planted in California. It's also since been planted in Australia and New Zealand. But it is a genetic mutation of Pinot Noir. There is another one that is a genetic mutation that, well, it's a clone variant of Pinot Noir called uh, Fruburgunder. I bet you you can guess where that's from. Uh, it's also Austria. early. <laughs> it's from somewhere in one of the German regions, um, but it's a, it's a mutation that was also uh, a genetic mutation that is cloned and ripens earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they they prefer the earlier ripening in places where the weather where the, where the growing season is shorter. So they they'll that's why they grow it there. Uh, there's also one called Wortham Pinot. And this was a variety that was produced in the UK a very long time ago and then um, was moved and cultivated in other regions. But it is a – also, they, they thought for a long time it was a separate uh, varietal, but then uh, they 
genetic they did the genetic sequencing on it and it turns out it's it's, it's, it's just pinot noir it's just a a different variant of it and um but they do plant that and you can get wines that are labeled with wortham pinot which is pinot noir but it Mm -hmm. is grown in in uh it was widely grown in southern england for a long time and uh now there's been climate change so they don't grow there as much there there is some stuff that they grow there now but um the the this is the one that had the rumor that the Romans brought that over to England when they occupied England. Uh, really interesting if like they did and it was just like it because it wasn't grown enough to like super mutate, you know, in that long time frame mm-hmm. that it was actually all of that was true. Yeah. Well, and you know, the art of, of clipping and cloning is thousands of years old. And mm-hmm. so you could have a, a, a thousand, you know, thousand, thousand year old, vine that is just a clone of something over and over and over and over again and Mm -hmm. it would be genetically identical going back hundreds of years and if you're not if you're not allowing it to mutate uh which i think mutations i think breeding comes from the seeds and then mutations come from a clone that changes Mm -hmm. and uh, i think that's the difference i I don't know for sure that actually be an interesting topic to investigate because there's mutations in clones and and then there's uh, varietals that are that can be hybrids, and they're grown. They're all done in different ways. So mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's kind of interesting. Maybe we'll explore that in another episode. Yeah, that sounds like um, a fun episode. Yeah, but Pinot Noir is is super interesting. I, I went over just a couple of the very popular mutations and clones or varietals here, um, but there are 50 official recognized mutations just in France. Wow. And they're they're all very different ones, and they're commercially grown. Uh, and they think there's probably way more than that. Uh, mm-hmm. Like one of the things that they said was that there's 25 recognized clones and mutations of Cabernet Sauvignon. So this is double that. Now, granted, Cabernet Sauvignon is a much younger uh, varietal. It was, uh, it, I think they, I think we went over it. And I think it was like the mid 1700s is when they came up with it. Yeah, like surprisingly, like every time we say that, I'm like. Wait a minute, that's not right. And then I remember, mm-hmm. no, it is. Yeah, so it's a, that's a very young grape, but it's you know second most popular grape cultivated. But Pinot Noir, fourth most popular, and it is many thousands of years old, at least two thousand years old. So uh, a really interesting grape, a very and it and the, one of the things that they were saying in this article that I was reading about it is that it is prone to mutation, and that's one of the reasons why it's so popular is because it is it's sort of like the. Uh, whatever the dogs came out of, it was a mm-hmm. type of canine that is just prone to mutation, which makes it very suitable for cultivation. And, um, cause you can get a lot of different things out of it and it, and it, and you can select, you can select for the qualities from different vines that you want. And it, and it works really well for that. Uh, so the next part of the Pinot Noir segment, I wanted to kind of go over, uh, seven of the more popular regions for Pinot Noir. Sounds or, good. Uh, regions is not really the right thing to say for this because these are countries or states that are popular for Pinot Noir. And then there are sub-regions within those places that are different, that grow different things. But most of these, I'm just talking about one particular area. Um, gotcha. So the first one is Argentina, humongous country. But uh, there is a relatively new region that specializes in Pinot Noir. It's all along the... Rio Negro River, uh, which is in southern Argentina, I believe, which is not where not where Mendoza is. Mendoza is kind of like up north in the mountains, 
uh, from what I understand. And this is very far south in Argentina. And Argentina is a very long country. Uh, this is a much cooler climate. And, that, and that's what Pinot Noir kind of needs. It needs a cooler climate. And because uh, it, it's a long ripening mm-hmm. uh, grape for the most part. Uh, but one of the things that's nice about this is that it is uh, very inexpensive per bottle because it's a new region. So the the flavors that you would expect to get from it is uh, spice and black cherry flavors. So it seems like uh, South America is you're going to get a lot more of the spicy flavors out of those. And I don't know if it's a terroir thing or if it's a process thing, like why they're way, the way they do it. Like Carmenere down there has that black pepper flavor that's in it, mm-hmm. which I, I like a lot. Especially if you get a good one, there's a lot of that, and it's it's a very interesting flavor. The way that they're describing, I've never actually had an Argentinian Pinot Noir. I, I don't know how widely available it is, but they were saying that it's about $15 a bottle if you can get it. It's really inexpensive. And it's and it's not widely sought after yet. So uh, if you can get yourself your hands on a bottle, it's usually just kind of a, a specialty shop will have it, or maybe you can get it online. And Maybe. it'll be. I was gonna say the black, uh, so Rio Negro is uh, Black River, obviously in Spanish, um, and that area in uh, Argentina is at the north end of Patagonia. So hmm. definitely very so very south. far south. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's super interesting. Like that, it also is more spicy, and because you know, like you're saying, like Carmen like which is we both really like from mm-hmm. there. Yeah, that's that's interesting that they both that like you said like what why what's what's the yeah. reasoning there so yeah and I, you, and I wonder if it's yeah if I wonder if it's a process or if it does have to do with like a common terroir of the continent yeah because you, you don't always get it but it, it it's a lot more like I get a lot more of that black pepper flavor out of Chilean wines mm-hmm. than I do even even Chilean like I had this biodynamic Chilean Cabernet Sauvignon that had that flavor. So I don't know if it's a process thing or if it's a terroir thing, but you also get that black pepper from, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name, uh, Rhone, Rhone, uh, Rhone varieties. So you don't always get it, but it's like Syrah, um, or Shiraz from Australia. You, you do tend to get that. It's just mm-hmm. not as, as common. Like when I have those, I don't get it as much as I get it from Carmenere from Chile or certain, uh, certain Malbecs and stuff like that from Argentina. And so I'd be curious to try this one because that's what they're kind of identifying it. And I also wonder if there's like, if there might be like a seed planted uh, to look for that flavor mm-hmm. when it's, when it's something we've detected before and now we look for it in those wines. Maybe because I, I think if you did a blind taste, like I think both of us would notice that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that's probably true. We should set up a blind t- taste next time you and I are uh, in the same place. Yeah. Get either your wife or my wife to like get like four bottles of stuff and, and to do like a blind t- taste and see if we can like identify what it is and where it's from. I think that'd be fun. That would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make a note about that. That'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. So <laughs> the second the second region that I picked out, uh, well, these are all from an article that uh, – was just the most common places to get Pinot Noir or, or notable places. It wasn't mm-hmm. most common. Uh, next one was California. So California is a lot hotter than a lot of places where they grow Pinot Noir, but they do get some of those co- coastal temperatures, which does cool it off and makes it a little bit more suited for it. Um, 
So you get a, in California, you get a very wide range of flavors from Pinot Noir. So in this article, they were specifically talking about Sonoma, which um, is not necessarily my favorite place for Pinot Noir, but I also don't remember if I've had that much from Sonoma. Mm-hmm. And I also don't really identify Sonoma with Pinot Noir, which I think is interesting that that's what they chose for this article. Yeah. Uh, I, I identify Sonoma with what I identify Napa with, which is Cabernet Sauvignon uh, and Zinfandel. Uh, and it might just be because that's what I've gotten from there, but they identify that they have good Pinot Noir. So that might be one to check out. And it, because it's hotter, they say you're getting a lot more of the black cherry and raspberry fruit bombs of Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. uh, which sounds pretty good to me. I like those. And, and I like, <laughs> I like a, I like a Cab Sauv fruit bomb too. So that sounds pretty good to me. Um, one of the things they said stylistically that's different about Sonoma is because Sonoma does have a lot of money you do tend to get things oaked a lot more heavily. And so you're going to get stronger notes of tobacco, vanilla, uh, baking spices, things like that, that come from the oak. And I, I think that's interesting that they did, they did specifically point out stylistically, it's going to be different just because of the oaking, which not everywhere can afford the oak and, or they won't oak it as long, or they'll use a different type of oak. And um, that's a little less expensive. And so you don't get those additional flavors. And then they also did note Santa Rita Hills. Uh, so it's a cooler region of Santa, Santa Rita Hills. They tend to be uh, on the spectrum of strawberry and raspberry more than black cherry and raspberry and uh, less oak. So you're not going to get as much of those like oaky tastes. And um, the price varies widely in this. So you can get, well, we this what you and I chose was a good, a good example. You can get $15 uh, from... Uh, you, yours was Monterey, you said? Yes. So you get $15 from Monterey or you can get $50 from Santa Rita Hills with what I was drinking and uh, everything in between and everything above it too. I mean, there's a lot of highly sought after Pinot Noirs that are from California that are up on the higher end. Uh, but you can get a good bottle from, you know, between 15 and, and 50 bucks and you'll, you'll be happy with it. And it'll be kind of an interesting thing to explore. The third region is France, of course, uh, in particular Burgundy, which is one of the most well-known areas for Pinot Noir because it is possible that it came from Burgundy. And um, one of the things is if you're if you're a lower price seeker, Burgundy is kind of harder to shop in because they do tend to be in general a higher price point. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're if you're kind of getting into Pinot Noir or just getting into to wine, a lot of times it's, it's not a bad idea to start in Europe because that's what a lot of people are basing their descriptions off of. You and I don't because you and I kind of started here in in the New World wines, the more uh, not pure in the sense of purity of like betterness or whatever, but pure as in single grape. Yeah, we and, we really didn't go for uh, mixed wines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and actually Burgundy doesn't do mixed. Uh, Burgundy, by their purity laws, I think have to be like 95% Pinot Noir. Hmm. Um, so I, I think they have other things as well. Like Be- Beaujolais is technically, I think, in Burgundy. Mm-hmm. And they do Gamay. Um, so there – and there's a couple of other things in that area too. I, I'm not – I don't always remember all the regions and, what, and what's going on. But I think that like Burgundy proper has to be Pinot Noir. And that's one of those like weird laws that they have with their AVA. Uh, but they do tend to be a little bit more tart 
and they do have uh, more earthy flavors and grass notes, like or like the um, what they call uh, herbiscus, I think. So the more vegetable-y tastes in it that uh, I identify as grass or sometimes bell pepper, but mm-hmm. typically grass is is what is what I'll uh, uh, identify it more with. Uh, but because you know it is Burgundy and it's well known for this, expect to pay thirty dollars or more per bottle uh, for a good bottle. There's gonna be you can get less less uh, quality stuff for less, uh, and then there are a lot of regions that are associated with Burgundy or are technically part of Burgundy where you can get Pinot Noir, um, but it's not going to be the same as the you know not with the prestige of Burgundy. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, fourth on my list. Can you guess? Can you guess fourth because it's a region that you tend to like, but it's not. It's not Georgia. <laughs> um, I would think New Zealand. Uh, that's actually on the list, but that's not the next one. It's uh, Germany. Ah, yeah. So Germany fourth, which I don't. I don't associate with uh, Pinot Noir at all. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Yeah, but uh, apparently there is a region called Spatburgunder. So S-P-A-T-B-U-R-G-U-N-D-E-R. Spat, Spatburgunder? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, oh, no, the, the wine is known as that. The region is called R, so A-H-R. And uh, they tend to have more plum and earth flavors. So more of the European. So European wines do tend to have more the the minerality, which people describe as earth. Um, I There is an earthy flavor that I would describe as earth, but then there's also things that people describe a lot as earth that I would, I would describe more like gravel or slate or uh, rubble like rocks because it's like a different thing. But a lot of times they'll mix those two. Um, they won't differentiate European wines do tend to have a lot of that and to, to lower or higher degrees. So the way they're describing this sounds, sounds like, you know, sounds like a European wine to me. Uh, these are actually really hard to get in the United States. They just don't import them very often because it's not a, but, but they do widely drink them in Germany and the region is a warmer part of Germany. So it's a big vacation spot for a lot of Germans uh, when it starts getting cooler in Germany. Um, so, but in the United States, you can expect to pay about $15 a bottle if you can find it. So it is inexpensive, but it's also kind of difficult to find. So it's kind of an interesting sort of, sort of the same thing with when we were talking about Argentina. Um, let's take a quick break for our sponsor and then we'll get into five, six, and seven. And and I'm going to step away from the computer for just a second and you can fill some dead air. Okay. (laughs) So here's the, here's our sponsor. Hi folks, Dan Reed here, the host of the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. During the show's tenure, I've spoken to celebrated authors of baking and economics. I've chatted with bakers and chefs and libertarians alike to introduce you to people who provide a mix of ideas to build your skills in the kitchen, as well as tempt your appetite toward liberty. Type culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts into your browser search bar and subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. I look forward to hearing from you. So, as always, I thank the Culinary Libertarian for his continued uh, support uh, through Nikki P. So, that's always fun. Did, yeah. it, did, it sound, uh, did it sound okay? Yeah, it was fine. Okay, good. 
All right, so yep, you you know about that. Nikki P's got it. The show's a great show. I actually haven't listened to this week's yet, but he's always got great advice about cooking, and uh, also he gets into a lot of libertarian topics, which are is fun too, and and sometimes how it relates to cooking, which is kind of neat, but also just in general. And uh, I enjoy his show a lot. I'm hoping that he lives out in Oregon. I'm hoping to get out there at some point and uh, visit with him and and visit you know some of the people we know in Oregon. That'd be cool. Yeah. So number five on our list, getting back to the list of Pinot Noirs, uh, Italy, in particular northern Italy, which is does it borders Austria and I think a little bit of Germany. Uh, no, it's Aust- no, Austria. Austria cuts it all off. That's Austria and like Switzerland, I think. Oh, okay, yeah. So up there in, in the Italian Alps, I guess, or near the Italian Alps, is um, there it, they call Pinot Noir there. It's called Pinot Nero. And um, it is apparently very similar to Burgundy. It is a lower price point. So a lot of people would like to get this again, more difficult to get in the United States because it's not as well known. Mm -hmm. Um, So they do tend to have a lot of those same things that, that they describe in Burgundy uh, with the, the uh, earthiness, but also the tartar fruit flavors that kind of grassy herbiscus flavors and stuff like that. Um, they do tend to be a little bit cheaper starting out, closer to the twenty dollars mark. But they, but they do have some of the more expensive ones from more well-known uh, makers, and those can get up to seventy plus dollars. So, kind of an interesting. I, I'd actually be curious to try Italian wine, uh, Pinot Noir from Italy. I think that's kind of interesting. That does. Uh, yeah, they and they do like. I like Italian wines, especially when they're trying to do other. Uh, when they're not doing their own wine, I always think that's interesting because it's. Because it's a lot of time, it's very reminiscent of New World wines, yeah, but I, from Europe. I think it's a lot more free too. Like they can kind of really try different things. Which is Actually, we're gonna get we're gonna get into that a little bit in our uh, next article. Article because um, Italy has some interesting things going on with uh, the wine response to COVID in Europe. That I, I'll, I'll make a note on it when it will come up. But we'll go ahead and finish the last two Pinot Noir grapes. Uh, New Zealand. One of your favorite places. Yes. Uh, also, I think we both either, well, maybe I just had it, but remember that Pinot Gris that you got from New Zealand that yes. we both were like, it tastes like nothing. That was like really silver early fern. on in the show. Yeah. Yeah. We had the fern on it. Right. Yeah. Silver fern. Silver fern. That's right. Yes. Uh, so silver fern had a Pinot Noir that I tried. I don't remember if you did or not. No, but you told me about it, but I don't remember anything from there. I, I liked that Pinot Noir a lot better than I liked the Pinot Gris, but it was also very, very delicate. And I think the way that they're describing uh, Pinot Noir in this article is very similar to what that was like. So um, New Zealand tends to have more of a straight cherry flavor, not tart, not black cherry. So more of like a traditional cherry flavor, um, baking spices, and what is described as a cola finish. And I thought that was like a really good way to describe it because there was something at the time that I, and I looked back at my notes going like, Hey, there's something at the end of this that I don't really know how to describe. And I think it was that kind of cola finish. It's been, mm-hmm. I think I got that like, I mean, it was right when we moved to Texas, I think. And I was here, I think I was here by myself uh, when Victoria went back to school for a while. And so I was just trying a whole bunch of wines because I didn't really have anything else to do. I didn't have any friends here. It was, and I was just trying to like go hardcore on the show and like, and also expand my palate really rapidly. And, uh, I do recall like making a note of that being like, Oh, this is really interesting. New Zealand Pinot Noirs tend to be 
Uh, they start out with the, the better ones at the $25 range, but they are frequently on sale at like Total Wine or Kroger. So you can probably get them for a little bit less. They do get higher, but the ones that are a higher price point are usually harder to find in the United States. Uh, then the last but not least, Oregon. Very famous for, for Pinot Noir. A lot of people um, get a lot of Oregon Pinot Noirs. Uh, Cl- uh, not Columbia Valley. Um, Umpqua Valley. Um, that's like a... Willamette. That's the, that's the valley that I'm looking for. <laughs> Willamette Valley. Umpqua is like a is a subregion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Willamette Valley is uh, what is very famous for Pinot Noir. And Columbia is is part of Oregon and Washington. That's more famous for Cap, Cap Sov and some other yeah, things. Yeah, that's but huge. Further north. Yeah. yeah, much further north. This is this is kind of right down the co- the center coastal region of Oregon. It doesn't. It's not the coast, but it's like that in between that mountain range right there. Um. And you and they and they do. They make great Pinot Noir, widely available at a very large uh, price point. But typically, Willamette Valley Pinot Noir for a better one, starting at twenty dollars, you can get higher. But you're going to get from that lighter cranberry flavors, uh, a little bit more tart, usually to the kind of pomegranate flavors. Uh, which actually, I think I described pomegranate in this in the Santa Rita one. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was one of the ones I was talking about. And then like for on the fruitier end, more of that dark cherry, the kind of sweeter dark cherry flavors. There is also a common description of Pinot Noir from here. And I've gotten that a little bit. I wouldn't describe it this way, but some people do, is they describe it as a mushroom. I usually describe it more uh, as leather, and I always was under the impression that that came from oak. But they're saying that that kind of umami flavor mm-hmm. of the of mushroomy leatherness is just a, it's just part of the terroir of that part of, of Oregon. And um, they're very famous for Pinot Noir. So they do tend to be a little bit of a higher price point, like I said, but starting at $20, you can usually get a pretty good bottle. Yeah. And, um, and that kind of rounds out uh, basically what I wanted to talk about for Pinot Noir. Yeah. So you want to move on to my news article or use your news article? Well, it's 50, the shows we've been doing about 50 minutes. Um, so I think we need to do just one of the articles, not to okay. go super long. Um, okay. so as yours is more wine related and mine okay. is just bitching, <laughs> we'll go, with, <laughs> we'll go with yours. Um, but okay. just to lay on the line with what mine was, mine was specifically the fact that like some health official in Virginia, who isn't not an elected person was talking about making it mandatory that all Virginians vaccinate when a vaccine becomes available. Yeah. Um, and not only that, it was not only the COVID vaccine, but he, in the article, it says that he was going to mandate flu vaccine too, or, yeah. or maybe, or maybe Massachusetts was going to mandate yeah. flu so, vaccine I as mean, well. You know, just as usual, people who have like no concept of what's, what reality is like are basically trying to tell you what to do with your life. But that's all we're going to say about that one. <laughs> so yeah, you can go check that out. It's on Zero Hedge. Um, it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll try to remember to put it in the show notes. I've been doing a bad job on show notes lately. Oh, it's called uh, Virginia Plans Mandatory COVID Vaccines for All Residents. But it's over on Zero Hedge. It's a Tyler Durden article. Uh, check that out. Yeah. Now, real quick about Pinot Noir. Um, so Moscato Vineyards La Moscato Pinot Noir 2017 is available at the Oak Lawn. The total wine, which I can never remember which one is the close one by you now. Well, I'm, it's not Oakland anymore. Now it's uh, either, uh, I think it's Hearst or uh, South Arlington. 
Gotcha. Um, cause this one, it, cause it's a, it's a, uh, Argentinian Pinot Noir. Um, so if it's, I mean, if it's at the other one, I can either go over there or they'll send it over to this one cause yeah. they'll, they'll send them, they'll send them over locally sometimes. Yeah. So they, it's in the Arlington one as well. Oh, cool. Okay. So yeah. Maybe I'll go down and get that. left. And then, so it's also available in Norfolk. So if you do choose to get it, let me know. And then we can kind of do a follow up and talk about specifically Argentinian Pinot Noir, which neither of us. Yeah, had. that's true. Actually, that'd be kind of fun to do a deep dive on that. And, uh, and both do the same Argentinian wine on that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think make, make a mental note and remind me. Yeah. I think this is try, good. Try that out. I, what I like about this episode so far is we've done a lot on the wine um, without a lot of COVID or other nonsense talk, but also yeah. kind of that, like, it's been a very pleasant, like, exploration of the wine. So Yeah, it, it, and, is, it is, like, as I started doing research, because I started doing the research on this this afternoon, mm-hmm. and because uh, we had the cleaning lady come, and so... I told her don't clean my room. I'll just sit in here and do work. Cause I had some other work to do as well. Mm-hmm. And while I was waiting for like debug runs and stuff to go, I was like, Oh, I'll get started on the show notes. And I, as I started looking at Pinot Noir, it's a really interesting grape. Like I could have, I could have done like another 50 minutes probably on, on just Pinot Noir stuff. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, it's such a interesting grape. Like I, you know, I love Cab Sauv and I, and I like Cab Franc and stuff like that. When I've done those grapes before, it's not as much like interesting, unusual information. There was even like weird, like history, like history stuff that was related to, oh, there's the dogs, uh, (laughs) that were related to like different historical figures loving it. Like Napoleon loves Burgundy Mm -hmm. and like, and then like them talking about other interesting facts about different people and their opinion on, on Burgundy and their, and then like how, like that English one, how it got into the new world, how that UCLA variant got into California, like all those types of things are super interesting too. Yeah. So, so yeah, it'd be fun to do a, d- a deep dive on that. And I think actually that English one is what they grow in Argentina. And so that might be, that may be fun to kind of explore that a little bit more. Yeah. Especially if we can kind of nail down is that is if we get this one is this one specifically the English one or is it like somehow the other one? Yeah. Yeah. That would be, that would be very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's, uh, let's make like a, a note about that and try to come back to it. Cause that would be fun. Maybe, maybe we can even do the next episode on that. Cause, uh, we still have some more of the famous grapes to go through, but we could kind of do like a, uh, Pinot Noir part two kind of, and mm-hmm. go deep dive into Argentinian Pinot Noir. Yeah. I think that'd be good. Yeah. I think that'd be a lot of fun. All right, well, let's go ahead and get into this article. The article is uh, from our boy Chris Mercer over at Decanter Magazine, and um, uh, that's decanter.com, and it is called uh, Fears of Too Much Wine as Europe's uh, 2020 Harvest Begins. So this is – I'm kind of trying to build on what we talked about last episode with the kind of – from your yours and my standpoint, at least, a very odd re I wouldn't even say a really odd, but like a silly reaction to the COVID drop in demand on wine. So as I said before, my opinion as like a capitalist slime ball or whatever is <laughs> uh 
the way that you clear the market is you just drop the price until people are willing to buy it. Mm-hmm. Hit the market. The way that, right, exactly. <laughs> you just do a correction. And, and, and in this case, yeah, yeah. I mean, in this case, I kind of get it because this is like, a, it's a government created problem mm-hmm. to a government solution to a disease that legitimately is a, like legitimately is going to kill people and, and has killed people, mm-hmm. but that their reaction to it, to me and from everything that I know about it, especially since it's got a survival rate of like 99.88888% if you're under 40 um, or 99.999992 or something like that. It's like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> the survival rate. It's very high. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they basically, ruined like the economic fallout from this i think is going to cause so much more death than mm-hmm. uh but anyways that's sort of the response to this in europe for the wine industry has been particularly interesting to me and it and but it's a very typical government solution to a lot of stuff so uh to kind of sum up i'll go ahead and sum up the article and and i'll do i'll hold the editorial or the more the the more in-depth editorial for afterward. Uh, so uh, Europe's 2020 harvest is expected to be very robust due to very good weather. So 2020 has been an excellent year as far as weather goes um, in Europe. And so they're expecting say, in a, Europe, unlike last year. Exactly. Last year was terrible. Yeah. Uh, this year, there it, it's uh, very robust. <laughs> so, uh, so they're expecting a very good harvest. But the problem is that wine sales are down largely due to um, the pandemic, uh, the COVID issues. And and to uh, Chris Mercer's credit, he says, he says, I'll quote it actually. Let me, let me uh, read it real quick. So he says specifically, um, largely due to the economic impact of the COVID-19 lockdowns. So he doesn't say, that's a quote, so he doesn't say specifically just due to COVID. It's just due to the lockdowns that have caused uh, reduced demand in wine. Mm-hmm. And and I, I appreciate that because uh, whether he intended that to be uh, what I picked up on or not, I appreciate that that's what he said because it's accurate. The lockdowns are what are causing the economic downturn. It's not COVID specifically. It's the reaction to COVID. And I, I, I guess this is me getting into editorial, <laughs> but I just wanted to point that out that that's what he yeah, said. He he specifically points out the fact that it's not like people who are saying like, oh, you know, everything went bad because of COVID. It's like, no, it was our response to COVID. Whether that was the right response or not, that's we're not making that conversation. We're not having that conversation at the moment. The conversation we're having is the fact that it's these are the government's chosen response. They could have responded a different way. Maybe they responded the right way. Maybe they didn't, but yeah. And and, and it's hard. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so to help reduce stock and make room for the new vintage, France, Italy, and Spain have agreed to pay jointly to have much of the stock distilled into industrial alcohol. Uh, we did mention this last week as France's response, but Italy and Spain have now signed up to do this as a joint venture with the, uh, other two large wine producing countries. Uh, this will be used uh, for things from fuel additives to uh, hand sanitizer. So uh, I don't know how much hand sanitizer you need, but I guess there's a there's a huge demand now for it. So whatever. Um, yeah, I know, I know. Although I, you know, I like the feel of hand sanitizer. 
So because <laughs> you're gross, <laughs> I know, I know. But you know, I, I used to put that at work. I used to put that Purell on every time I would come mm-hmm. out, and then like wave my hands and feel it evaporate. I love the way that feels. But uh, yeah, it, it is a. Uh, it's yeah, it's bizarre how much uh, they're going to be producing of this, but it is going to be used as a as a fuel additive, and they're. I think they're actually. He doesn't mention this in the art. Well, again, this editorial. We'll leave that aside. Let me let me finish summarizing. Um. Other efforts to curb on production. Um, so other efforts are curbs on production, um, efforts to locate and build more storage space. So those, so they're going to be trying to find more storage space and also build more storage space. They're also trying to curb production of wine in general. Uh, some vineyards have performed what is called green harvesting, which is actually something we could do another full episode on, uh, just because it's a, it's an interesting. Um, it's a, it's a pruning tactic that they use to cut off some of the grapes on the vine to reduce the yield, but to concentrate sugars into the existing grapes. Mm-hmm. So you end up getting a concentration of flavors into the remaining grapes, and it produces a higher quality wine, but it also reduces the yield quite a bit. Yeah, and you can do this with tomatoes and stuff too. Exactly, yeah. And that's actually what I was thinking of too, because I do this is uh, usually what I'll I don't do it when there's lots of tomatoes on the vine. I'll usually pick the flowers off uh, when mm-hmm. it's too early to get a to get a higher yield later, so that the the plant concentrates on rooting and growing as opposed to producing fruit early. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but the, yeah, this is a technique that they that they use uh, called green harvesting to do that. Um, there was a, a lot of very famous vineyards that are trying this technique out this year. They haven't done it in many many years in a lot of places because the yields have been very good and the concentration of sugars have been very good for the last several years, which uh, may add a little bit of uh, evidence to our stack of that possible global warming climate change uh, is happening, whether it's man-made or not is, is another argument. But um, this does seem to be kind of one of those things where they add to, because they did have a a little quote from one of the uh, one of the growers in Alasas who was saying, well, we haven't done this in years because we get plenty of sun and plenty of heat now, which is is making all of our grapes a higher quality. And so we haven't really done this green harvesting. We used to do it to concentrate and ripen the a smaller portion of the grapes so that we would produce a higher quality wine. But for many years, we've not had that problem. And so they've just been harvesting everything. So, yeah. But that also could be attributed to new techniques and things like that. So it's one of those things that we'll talk about another time. It could also be an uh, overall more competitive world market where yeah. they have to actually compete more. I mean, like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah. And it also could be a palate change. Like people have a different flavor preference. So mm-hmm. they're so less sugary wines. They want a lower alcohol content or lower flavor content for one way or the other. Like, I mean, that uh, it's interesting because like I drink so much sparkling water now, which has like no flavor. <laughs> but I used to almost exclusively drink Diet Dr. Pepper, mm-hmm. which has a very strong sweet flavor. It does. And uh, and then I realized at some point that I do enjoy the sweet flavor, but it's, it, what I'm usually going for is that carbonated texture. I just like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that might be one of those things where it's just people's preferences changed. And and so that is what's going on. But we'll, we'll, we'll kind of discuss that again later. Um, so in Champagne, we discussed this a little bit last week. Uh, houses have agreed to reduce output from around 230 million bottles to uh, – well, no, they, they used to – I'm sorry. I got that backward. They used to produce about 300 million bottles of Champagne. 
they're reducing that to about 230 million bottles. And 70 million bottles not being produced. Yep. Yeah, so they're they're most of that is going to be either distilled into still wines, alcohol for fuel additives or other types of industrial alcohol use or is just going to be destroyed. Jeez. So um, which they also have to pay for the destruction of that as well, which is, it does seem like a waste to me as well. Like again, years in my preference would be just that they clear the market by reducing price, but uh, clearly that's not what's going to happen. Yeah, but like uh, if, if you're the yeah. seller, like you could also choose to destroy the stock as opposed to taking the loss. I mean, like you know, there's multiple yeah. ways to take the loss, and that's one of the things that kind of sucks about the the government stepping in. I mean, like it's good to see that they're trying to come up with a and I'm using air quotes over here, like right. a solution that fits what's going on in the market, like the need for additional hand sanitizer and stuff like that. And hand sanitizer, you could theoretically just stock. Right. So, you know, like, hey, you like you don't need all that much now, but like, hey, you don't have to produce more later. But like, what about the people who are already making hand sanitizer? <laughs> like, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because that, that does, and it affects their bottom line. So the people who are already making hand sanitizer, uh, Purell or whoever, you know, they they would clear the market by raising prices and, and wine would clear the market by lowering prices if depending on what demand is like. But, you know, again, that's sort of a, a side conversation. Um, I'll go get through the last couple of points. So Italy has begun work uh, on state funded scheme to lower yields. So they're basically, they're going to basically just tell everybody not to harvest as much uh, and just let it kind of go to, go to rot or get rid of it. Uh, they're not even planning on, turning it into hand sanitizer or fuel additive because they, they don't have the capacity for it. That's like the other thing too, that's interesting about this. Uh, it doesn't really mention it much in this article, but if you start getting into the other stuff, one of the things is that the industrial alcohol has a capacity. Mm-hmm. Like they can't produce more because they don't have the ability to produce more. Yeah. And it's and not like this is some new technique for like this, is you know, like how much, how much were they turning into this beforehand? Like, yeah. And they, much- they were doing some, I'm sure like, you know, places that produced uh, like in particular France where, where stuff is usually produced by growers and bought up by negotiations or um, produced by specialty winemakers or whatever stuff that doesn't get bought up does usually get fermented into lower grade alcohol and used for something else. Hmm. And, uh, but anyway, so uh, Spain, which estimates a harvest 14% greater than 2019 uh, said that it will be paying winemakers to discard large amounts of their grapes. Um, so they they have set aside about 10 million euros to do this. They're estimating that they probably need to set aside a lot more to do this. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, they just haven't done it. Uh, then other regions are struggling to find extra storage space, uh, especially those with styles of wine that require aging. So this is another interesting unintended consequence of this is because of prices, some of the lower lower prestige, I guess, vintages mm-hmm. have bought up space to store their wine till a more favorable favorable time. But now we have harvests that are for more prestigious wines going on, and they're finding that their surplus storage that would have been available in under normal circumstances is not even available anymore. Hmm. So wines that retail for you know, 70 plus dollars a bottle that used to be able to be stored and aged in third party locations, those areas are occupied. Yeah. By lower level prestigious wines because they don't want to sell it at the current market rate. 
or, or they're unable to, what, you know, things like that. Uh, so they're, they are struggling to find more storage areas. And as a special dispensation, uh, in particular, Italy is doing this. France and Spain are looking at doing this as well. But uh, one of the reasons why space is so limited is because wine cannot be aged in the European viticulture pra- uh, laws, under those laws, the European Union standards, it can mm-hmm. be aged outside of the region. <laughs> so, I was wondering why they weren't shipping it to places. Exactly. Were, so like- there is a special dispensation saying that they're allowed to ship it to a neighboring region for up to 12 months uh, while this kind of blows over or whatever. So they're going to be – that's one of the things that now they're going to be able to do that does – give a lot more space, especially for if there's a neighboring region that doesn't normally store this, but they do have facilities that can store it. Mm-hmm. it as long as they can get the barrels to do it, they can, they can press the grapes and move them, move the wine to a, another place outside of the region and still maintain their AVA or well, for us, it would be AVA for them. It would be their, um, whatever the hell they call them over there. So yeah. they're special regions. So, uh, their their viticulture areas would they'd still be able to keep that label under European Union law because they get a special waiver. So that that's one of the interesting things that I saw about this is that some of the things that are you know we we're experiencing this here in the United States where they're kind of waiving a lot of alcohol laws mm-hmm. as a result of COVID, going like oh well these are special circumstances we don't need these laws and like you and me and a lot of people are saying well I guess we never really need those anyways exactly. If it's an emergency and it's good to waive them, why wouldn't we always waive them? So with this, it's an emergency and they can ship their barrels to neighboring regions to store it. In particular, they were, they were pointing out things that need to be stored for multiple years. Um, and, and, and a 12-month exemption doesn't really satisfy that because a lot of these need to be not disturbed for multiple years. Yeah. And so, so like when you said like stored, you know, in a different region – you know, what I was immediately thinking of is like, you know, the old post-Soviet bloc countries that like never really kind of took off, but have like possibly large industrial areas that, you know, you could theoretically do some of that stuff with. So I was like thinking like these people are going to be like shipping it to Romania. And then I realized you meant more like Burgundy is going to ship it next door. Cause like, yeah, you know, not well, and that's, like, that's, to I guess, a whole nother yeah. country. That that seems to be what they're talking about is that it has to be the neighboring region. It can't be it can't be a, a totally another country, um, which is unfortunate because as we've actually discussed on the show before, Moldova has some of the largest in the world wine storage caves. Mm-hmm. So, um, which was built during the Soviet times, they just basically made Moldova a wine producing country, and that's all they produced basically during Soviet times. So they have these vast, vast networks of caves for storing wine, and they're all in these limestone caves. So theoretically, I don't know what they're using those for, but theoretically, they have the capacity to take on just stacks of barrels of wine at a pretty regulated temperature in these limestone caves. Mm-hmm. So that might be a good solution to ship them all over to Moldova. Yeah. Even if it, even if it reduces prices and, and you lose your, your, you know, your wine is collectible. And, and this is one of the things that maybe I get this because I'm like a, a comic book guy, mm-hmm. but when there's a mistake or something a little bit different, that becomes a collector's item. Yeah. And, and I kind of feel the same way about wine. So you remember we, 
there was that wine unity coming out of um, uh, Oregon because of the smoke taint. Yes. I wonder what that. I wonder if that ever came available because I still want to get that. Yeah. Uh, but there was that unity wine that uh, I think it was called unity, but um, I'll, I'll look, I'll look for it. But uh, there was that, that wine where everybody came together to produce a wine and it may be smoke tainted. Mm-hmm. And they didn't hide that fact at all. This was because I think it was Copper Cane canceled all their contracts with yeah. these uh, these growers in in Southern Oregon because of the smoke from the campfire. Yeah, the possible ago. smoke taint. Yeah, yeah. And, and and there was no guarantee that there was no smoke taint, but it's one of those things that's really tough to find out until after the fact. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the growers in that area took as much capacity as they could and as much money as they could and bought up some of those grapes and produce a special vintage. And to me, that has a lot of appeal. And I think to you as well, like you and I are kind of interested in those weird things where it's like, Oh, this one is different. I just want to have it because it's different. Like you and I had, you and I had, I think, I think I bought three bottles. So I think, or no, I think I bought four bottles. I said, did I send you two laser cats and I kept two laser cats? I think so. Okay, so four bottles of a wine that only produced, I think, 32 bottles or, or 32 cases. Not 32 bottles. Um, yeah, 32 no, cases. That, yeah, 32 cases, I think. So um, so the the main appeal of that, I liked the wine a lot, and I thought it was a very interesting wine, but the main appeal of that was that it was rare and unusual. And in if they if there was some people who got together in Europe and were like, look, we don't want to destroy our vintage. We know we produce good grapes. We know we can produce good wine out of this. And it's not going to retail for the correct price because of the lockdowns for the next several years. But we know we can recoup the cost and at least break even if we ship it to Moldova. That wine would have an awesome story. And I would be totally interested in paying a premium for that. Yeah. Because it's just a cool – it's just a really interesting – wine and it may be i don't know if it would taste different i don't know how different it would be i don't know if it would be good bad whatever but like even if it was if it was like the equivalent of a 15 dollar bottle i would pay probably 30 or 40 bucks just to try it because it was it had an interesting story and it was the result of this whole bizarre situation that we're currently living in exactly and you're helping out the producers i mean that's the thing exactly one of one of the things that, and this is, I think where we'll kind of have to end it because we're running a little long now, but yeah, like my big thing is as usual, there is a lot of money in these wine industry, in these industries, but I think a lot of it isn't truly deserved. And I hate to say it that way. Like, you know, the, the federal reserve, like blue, you know, like the, the slowest recovery ever and look how much money they were spending. And then like, look at how much money the European union was spending. Like all these people were spending these insane amount of this insane amount of money to like try to recover the economy. And basically, you know, it never really happened, but it's like, where did all this money go? And that's kind of what I like always point out with in situations like this is most of it to me seems to have gone into like, we're not weird, but like into these wineries and stuff like that. So like, you know, how many of these businesses should just go out of business? Yeah. Like as it is. Yeah. Like, and it's, there's, and there probably is a lot of them that, that probably should, I mean, and part of clearing the market is bankruptcy. So, um, you know, for better, for, you know, I, I don't like the idea of, you know, Joe Schmo or whatever going out of business, but, uh, there's a reason why the market sends signals, 
to people to buy or not to buy. Uh, and it's and if the government keeps stepping in and preventing that from clearing, the clearance cost may be bankruptcy. Yeah, and, exactly. And that's I think that's fair. Like I don't I I don't like people going bankrupt. That's not like I'm not like foaming at the mouth hoping that people go bankrupt. But uh, if you don't produce a good product that people are willing to buy, you shouldn't be in that business. And you're and and it's not only that the government keeps spending money to keep you open. It's that whatever your talent is, is not being allocated correctly to the benefit of everyone else. So it's, it's kind of the, it's kind of a both thing. It's almost like a, like a weird, like this is almost me making like a socialist case or whatever is if you don't embrace capitalism, you're not benefiting everybody to your maximum potential. Well, and that's the thing is like, I think not that you're wrong, but like, I don't like the phrasing of that a lot because it, to me, like what I would say more is, you know, you're welcome to be inefficient in capitalism and you're welcome to not compete and not be in the industry that you would be best suited for, let's say. Right. Mm -hmm. But you are not welcome to force me to subsidize it. Right. You know, it's like, you know, like a food bank or something like that. If I choose to subsidize the food bank, that's a different conversation. I'm choosing right. to spend this money and do these things, not that I'm required to do these things. So that's one of the things that drives me nuts is like this idea that like, oh, like, you know, it's going to be your, the best allocation. No, capitalism is not going to produce the best allocation. It's going to strive always for the best allocation yeah. and naturally trend to the best allocation. But people are still welcome to do passion projects and all this stupid stuff. It's just you're not going to have to subsidize it anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. And and also like, you know, the people, the stupid people will still bid up prices, but you won't have like in this case, multiple hundreds of millions of euros bidding up prices that, so like, I mean like great, like wine could be stored in those caves that we were talking about in Moldova. That may not be the best allocation of those caves. Mm-hmm. So, and what and about the Moldovans? We, <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. So what, yeah, what are they doing? Like, and, and, and you know, it also it may, you know, there, there could be so many ramifications of it that wouldn't otherwise happen. And, uh, that's kind of why we, we would, you know, push for a free market in wine that, uh, we don't always get. And mm. especially because of how involved the government is in, is in Europe. And now we do have that here as well. There are California is doing some stuff for the wineries as well. And we may get into that, uh, in the future, but we'll save that for another episode because yes. we are at one hour and 20 minutes, but I thought, uh, that was entertaining. Well, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about Pinot Noir next episode. You want to yeah. go ahead and do our, uh, our plugs before yeah. we close out. So you can follow us on tastinganarchy.com. You can follow us on Twitter, tastinganarchy at twitter.com or .com, tastinganarchy on Twitter, Childerberg on Twitter, which is our annual event in Texas. Um, we will be, you know, slowly leaking more details about uh, Childerberg tree um, as they become available. Um, I do have dates. Do you want, yeah. you want me to give dates? Yeah. Real quick? Um, so it's going to be this year is 2020 May, or 2021, yeah, 2021 is going to be May 29th through May 31st. And I'll, I'll go ahead and let this leak right now. Uh, the last two Childebergs, we've done like a, a secret bonus evening on the 28th. This year it'll be on the 28th, but it's usually the day before we officially start Childeberg mm-hmm. because a lot of people have to fly out and uh, it's a lot of times easier for them to fly out early on Friday. Mm-hmm. And so to give people a place to camp on Friday night, I usually reserve um, a couple of campsites the night before. So 
if you are interested in coming to Childerberg May 28th, let me know and I'll make sure to get enough sites for everybody to uh, have a spot the night before. And it, it's usually a good time. It's usually kind of a warm up night. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people show up that are just kind of either driving in from out of state or flying in. It's usually the out of out of staters that are that are there that day. But then uh, I'm in talks with a particular distillery that most people know uh, to be able to get access to the stage of the distillery on the 29th for comedy and music. So we will hopefully. Now it's hard, like this year, COVID kind of ruined a lot of my plans. I'm hoping that next year things are relaxed enough that I can uh, bring my plans forward into 2021 and we will have some live music and some live comedy and um, it'll be a really good time. So uh, keep an eye on that. Definitely go over to childerberg.com and sign up for the newsletter because we'll be releasing information about that uh, as regularly as it becomes available. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it'll, it's good to stay up on it. Yeah. So that's all we got. All right. I guess everybody stay free. Stay free. (laughs) I think I cut you off on that. Stay free. Ah, it's fine.